from Relay FM. This is Download Recorded Thursday, January the 24th, 2019. This is episode 88, Creepy Robot Hotel. Welcome to Download, where we are always covering the most interesting technology stories of the week as determined by a star chamber of technology X. Well, no, it's me, Jason Snell, and Stephen Hackett. Hello. Hey, Jason. We have determined the top stories of the week, and we're going we're gonna to mix it up again. We've got a couple great guests coming later on. We have Natalie Jarvie of The Hollywood Reporter, who knows more than almost anybody around about what is going on in the intersection of digital media um, and the entertainment industry. So we're going to talk about uh, streaming services and Netflix and Hulu and stuff like that. And we also have Marco Arment, who people may have heard of from the Accidental Tech Podcast. Uh, and we're going to talk to him about some Tesla news. But uh, there's other news that we should talk about. And uh, Stephen, it looks to me like you think there's been a lot of news about robots that we should talk about. There's been a lot of robot news. And no, check your calendar. It's not CES week. (laughs) Robots or not. No, no, it is. It is robots. Okay. All right. It's a different show. Uh, yeah, so Amazon had this uh, this press release and this news thing uh, on the 23rd where they unveiled uh, a little delivery robot named Scout. Scout has six wheels. He's painted bright blue, and he will deliver your Amazon Prime packages to your house as long as you live in one particular county in Washington and as long as it's daylight Monday through Friday – and as long as there's a human chaperone who's available to to walk with Scout to make sure Scout doesn't run over anybody. But still, the future, Jason. It's the future. Hmm, I'm scared. I'm scared about these robots. So I, I'm going to talk a little bit about this, like the delivery thing in general. I think it's, I think it's a, a bigger story. I mean, yes, like this robot is sort of funny and it's clearly a very small test market. Amazon does this. They did it with drones somewhere in England. Now they're doing this in Washington State. But Amazon has been shifting what it's doing delivery wise. Like I know like just in my city of Memphis, even they are having lots of uh, packages delivered in Amazon vans now with people with Amazon shirts on, you know, not UPS, not FedEx, not the post office. Yeah. And so they, they are branching out on their own more and more, but you know, this sort of automation is going to put people out, out of a job. You know, we talk about automation and jobs and I think a lot of people think of in context of just, uh, factories, right? Like assembling cars or computers or whatever it may be. But a lot of jobs like this, you know, like service industry type jobs, delivery people, there's lots of parts of the economy that are going to be touched by this. I don't know if this particular, quite frankly, adorable blue robot Mm -hmm. is, is the future or is what, you know, everything is going to come to my house in. But this is always something I think to look at through that lens of like, this is neat, and like they've done a lot of machine learning, lots of engineering, but there is a human cost to it at some point if it goes broad. Yeah, I mean, the, the challenge is that the world isn't engineered for robots; it's engineered for people. So they're, they're you know, I, I think about like front doors and gates and things like that that this robot can't navigate. You're right about the jobs. Um, this does create a I don't know robot maintenance job and a robot loader kind of job. I also had that that uh, moment where I envision you know now what's going to happen is your amazon truck is going to drive into a neighborhood and like lower a ramp and like a whole team of robots are just going to 
roll on out and mm. and then the, the i don't know what the the truck driver like uh takes a break or he's he's monitoring in case something gets hung up and then he just waits half an hour and then all the robots return and then he goes back to base or something like that could totally be a thing where the robots do all the detailed delivery and then somebody just has to truck <laughs> the robots to wherever they're going um mm-hmm. i could see that but again like you know big steps and gates and things like that are going to be uh, a challenge unless there's like a a catapult or something inside the robot that will just like shoot <laughs> oh like a t-shirt cannon that like shoots the product and 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 although you could totally do that in like machine learning and like it just it lands perfectly on the uh, on the doorstep uh mm-hmm. but anyway there's a lot there's a lot going on here but i i think it is fascinating that amazon there are obviously people at amazon who their entire task is like how many different ways can we potentially transform and or disrupt um the logistics chain right and if lisa schmeiser were here she would talk i think probably at length about the uh logistics uh aspect of this because it is such a huge thing um and i think amazon's yeah amazon's putting a whole logistics center in in tennessee where you are uh, i imagine that this is part going to be part of that is it's not just like how do we get more boxes in more places but you know what what technology can we use to totally change how how this stuff gets delivered yeah there's sort of a a sibling story to this too we should talk about (laughs) did you see this about george mason university yeah these robots are cute because they look like remote control cars (laughs) (laughs) they do they look shockingly similar to the amazon tech yeah it's like uh, I guess there's only so many ways you can put a basket on wheels, but uh, so this is at Virginia's George Mason University. Virginia, by the way, has legalized delivery robots, which is a a phrase that I've never mm-hmm. said before. But uh, it is for people on campus; they can have access to food or beverages in like 15 minutes. You pay through uh, a mobile app, and there's 25 of these things milling around campus, and they'll deliver things like pizza, coffee, whatever else college kids eat. Um, and, uh, you know, roll up to your building and go outside and there's a, there's a pizza and a Starbucks waiting for you. So it's, it's interesting cause a, a campus is going to be a more of a closed environment than just like a whole neighborhood, right? I would imagine that these robots are not going to come in contact with instance, uh, for instance, with sidewalks, with like automotive traffic, right? Like most campuses don't have roads going through them, or if they do, it's very slow. Right. Lots more foot traffic to deal with. Sort of a a different set of problems, but I think it's interesting that this is sort of within a confined space, and and they know it all very well, and because it's all, you know, property that I assume is owned by this university, they can even, like, alter it. So if if there's something, there's a section of, I don't know, a section of sidewalk where the robots always get stuck, well, they can just go fix it right. as opposed right. to in a neighborhood at someone's driveway that's all busted up. So it's a very similar idea, but I sort of found that within a week we had stories of entities doing this, but in very different environments was was pretty pretty fun. Yeah, I think I might have mentioned it on a past show, but there was a, it reminded me at UC Berkeley they have these uh, delivery robots that were being tested uh, to deliver food. Um, called the Kiwi Bot, and you may have heard of it because what happened is that um, one of them caught fire. This is this was last month, um, and there was like <laughs> in the end there was like a vigil for the students, like put flowers at the side where the robot died, <laughs> which oh, is no. kind of adorable. Um, but it's also not great when your robot bursts into flames. Your delivery robot. Um, we live in a world where that's a f- sentence that I could say. So, but you're right again. Well, wh- college what campus. What if it picks up? uncooked pizza and it cooks the pizza on the way to you and the robot just perishes in the meantime uh maybe maybe 
uh, it seems like an expensive business. But college, yeah, disposable robots. It's it's uh, isn't Elon Musk <laughs> trying to 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 make sure that all everything we do is reusable? Spaceships, robots, all mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, I, the college campus thing. It, it's the same reason that you see things tested in subdivisions that are very specific. It's the same reason that Uber is it Uber is testing uh, whoever it is. Oh no, it's Waymo is doing the taxi service that's in like two suburbs of Phoenix in Arizona. Right. It's like they have right. a constraint space, it, and Waymo of course started with uh, a mountain view like just mapping they mapped every inch of google's campus and beyond and like that's how it starts because the world is super complicated and that's bad for robots so what you do is you start really small and that that shows you the danger of um going too far and uh Mm -hmm. and and saying uh well this will be everywhere now because that's not the case because the world is much more complicated than the than the test case but still you know there are practical applications for robots and it is the 21st century it's almost the 2020s right so yeah sure bring them on i guess sure but uh what you what you shouldn't do is uh stay at the robot hotel in in japan the story is very upsetting (laughs) (laughs) this is a wall street journal story about how there are robots everywhere in this hotel it is called the strange hotel it's the world's first robot hotel but it is now laying off its low performing robots it has culled over half of the 243 robots mostly because they it was a lot of work um and the the quote is it's easier now that we're not being frequently called by guests to help with problems Mm -hmm. with the robots Mm mm-hmm yeah mm-hmm. weird they they basically are like any place we could put a robot let's put a robot uh luggage storage mixing cocktails cleaning uh this is a ro- uh, this is next to a, a theme park so you know th- that may be why it's uh and th- there's a shortage of r- uh of uh workers because it's in a rural area so they're like ah we'll, we know we'll uh, use robots and we'll make it the robot hotel but uh it, it turns out that a lot of those robots were incredibly shocker impractical and um right. and not good and they are taking those robots out of the robot hotel my favorite part of the story is there's an image uh, a little way down the, the page and it's a robot at a piano and I thought, oh my gosh, there's a robot that plays the piano. And then you read the caption and it's a non-functioning robot and it's like an automatic player piano. So there's yeah. some theater involved here, I guess. Yeah. The robot yeah. Hotel. I like, I like the, the fish robots in the fish tank where I'm like, you know, are they robots? Cause that seems like it's just a slightly like a battery version of those kind of little plastic fish that you wind yeah. up and throw in the bathtub. I'm not sure mm-hmm. I would call them fish <laughs> robots, but well, what, what is a robot and what is not a robot? Who can, who can tell? No one knows. No one knows the answer to that question. Anyway, robots are in the news. It must be 2019. Uh, shall we talk about weird phones? That was another trend this week. Weird, weird phones. Uh, the buttonless, portless phone named the Meizu Zero debuted. It has no physical buttons. Oh, Steve Jobs, this was his dream. No, And Johnny Ive, it's probably his dream too. No buttons, no physical buttons, no speaker no charging po- uh, port it has capacitive panels on the side for your you know button touch control needs it's got uh, a transducer under the display that basically vibrates the display and that's where the sound comes out and it, it charges via wireless charging only um It'll only do data transfers over Wi-Fi and mobile. It doesn't have a SIM slot. It uses an eSIM. Uh, and the first thing I thought of immediately was, if it crashes, 
what do you do you literally like so many of these mobile devices there's a a restore thing that happens it's a little like the apple watch right where it's like if it dies when you're using a beta uh you have to give it to apple because like literally there's no way for you to 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 reboot it um but you know i don't know maybe it's the future what do you think about this thing it feels like if apple wanted to make a buttonless iphone the 10 would have been it they got rid of the home button but they kept not only the volume up and down and the sleep-wake button, but Apple is one of the only companies that ships a phone with like a, a mute volume rocker, right? Most mm-hmm. of these, like the most Android phones use volume down and you kind of move your way through the volume settings and then to vibrate and then to nothing. So I think Apple at least says or thinks that there is still merit in having some of those physical controls. And I agree with them. I think it's really nice to yeah. have actual volume buttons and like they're nice and clicky and... If you're wearing so, gloves, you can feel the you can feel where yeah. they are, and then you can click and, them, and you don't need to take and your fingers. Use them. <laughs> you know, take your hands right. off to get your fingers attached to them, and and you can. I, I do all the time the um the thing where you you know it's in your jeans pocket, and you you basically squeeze the outside of your jeans pocket to adjust the volume or to stop the phone from ringing. Like I do mm-hmm. that all the time, and you can't do that without physical buttons. Yeah, this seems like a, a, seems like one of those things. Sometimes you see this. And phone manufacturers where they 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 think they know where things are going to go and so they want to be first right so like people have talked about buttonless portless phones and so these folks just went out there and made one and so now they're first right so now the question is do people follow are you the first to someplace that no one else is going to go which is less impressive also this is where you end up with those things like that there was that phone that was the first one to drop the headphone jack and it's almost like you're just putting it in there so that when Apple inevitably does it later, somebody can go, well, actually, they weren't the first. There was this totally <laughs> right. obscure phone that did it that nobody cared about, and they were first. Like, great. Okay. Great. That's right. So now, if anybody else does this, people are going to be like, oh, the Meizu Zero was first. Nobody bought it, but it was yeah. first. So I, I think that's really what it's about. It is interesting. They're using eSIM, which, of course, Apple and others are doing. Uh, I think I think that very well like actually could be more the future than this, but you know uh, there you go. Why need but why have buttons? You know. So uh, the other weird phone is uh, from Xiaomi, and it is uh, a folding smartphone. So we've seen Samsung has talked about it, and that they're going to do a folding Galaxy this year. This uh, from Xiaomi is a uh, thing they posted on social media it looks like a phone or well no, what's the video it looks like a, t- a little tablet and then right. the guy like folds, folds one side over and the other side over and now it's like a phone uh, which is interesting folding this folding screen tech is definitely coming the part that really bothered me about it and i know this is weird but um is that they showed the back and not only does it not look great on the back because it's got you know these uh, this big uh thing down the middle of it that's like a I'm, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, you can, you can, know, you know what it looks like. It, it kind of looks like a butt. Anyway, that's what I'm saying. Uh, but also, the screen was on, like in the demo. So, like, you're holding your phone and looking at the front, and there's still like background colors and stuff playing on the back. And I thought, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. I don't want that at all. Um, also, that it folds down in thirds, so you have to do the two gestures to get it to be small instead of just like folding it in half. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I. I feel like we're definitely Wired did a piece about this this week too. Uh, what Lauren Good at Wired about how we are we seem to be exiting an era of stability and entering an era of spectacularly weird smartphones. Trying out, try, like just trying to do something new. 
You know, we're, we're 10, 11, 12 years into this now. You know, if you count the iPhone sort of being day one. And so maybe it is time for people to experiment with the form factor. You know, I've, I've got problems with this particular thing. I think you touched on mine really well. But I can't help but think that, you know, the next 10 years, maybe there is some sort of new form factor that we haven't considered or hasn't been possible yet. So I, I'm excited. Like the nerd in me is excited to see what these companies want to do. And, you know, at the same time, I think it will be more easy to take seriously after we see what Samsung has done. You know, these other companies, they are big in China and other places, but Samsung will bring a level of fit and finish to this that we haven't seen yet. And so I think I think that may be sort of the the starting point for me to take them more seriously. Well, we'll we'll see where it goes next. I I think the big question is what will people actually like to use, right? Because most of this stuff is going to be bad. That's like, and I don't mean that I'm specifically calling out any new technology here. I'm just saying that as if what history has shown us is that this is the flinging spaghetti against the wall phase. And a lot of it's right. just not going to stick where people are going to be like, yeah, you could do this, but why? And the first generation of buyers of this stuff will be like, oh, this is cool. And then they'll try it out and they'll be like, meh, I, you know, I didn't use that feature or it was really hard to use or whatever. And then there's that next wave where somebody will get it right. And then everybody will be like, aha, that's how we use this. Or nobody will get it right and they'll walk away from it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. All right. The other story I wanted to bring up uh, for this episode is about um, Apple Pay. Uh, for mm-hmm. those for those uh, listening in the U.S., like there are places in the world where Apple Pay is not available. There are places in the world where Apple Pay is widely available as part of a contactless culture. Uh, being in the U.K., you can like pay for everything with Apple Pay. It's amazing. And then when I was in the Netherlands, you couldn't pay for anything because it was not uh, turned on in the Netherlands, which was really frustrating. Uh, Just no Apple Pay there when I was there. But here in the US, it's a mixed bag because although we did have a big transition to chip readers uh, because we have chips in our cards at last, um, contactless has not followed as quickly. Plus, there have been a lot of disputes where different uh, providers, different uh, different retail operations wanted to set up their own uh, sort of uh, loyalty slash e-payment system. Um, right. And so they didn't want to support Apple Pay, which also means like Google Pay and Samsung Pay and all of the other uh, uh, smartphone payment systems. Uh, it seems like ever so slowly, this is all starting to cave. Uh, Apple Pay is now available at a bunch of places that will probably make our friend Casey Liss very excited. <laughs> He loves Target and Taco and Bell. And Taco Bell. So. Yeah, that's right. Jack in the Box is also available uh, if you right. want to visit the clown. And uh, uh, things I've never heard of like Hy-Vee and Speedway are also there. It's not um, It's not everywhere. There are still holdouts. Um, but it seems like very slowly everybody is just saying the inevitable, which is this is what everybody, this standard is what everybody is using, whether it's Apple Pay or again, the Google and Samsung versions. It just seems like, like this is where it's going. I've also seen watching sports the last few weeks, because that's the only place that I see ads is in sporting events. So watching the NFL playoffs, that there are, uh, there are these ads, um, there's an ad fe- featuring Drew Brees, the quarterback for uh, the New Orleans Saints, where he buys something by tapping with his credit card. And, um, you know, people in other parts of the world will laugh at this, but like they tried once to do contactless in cards in America 
and I got a contactless card and I actually bought something at a baseball game once with it. But like, like six months later, they sent me a new card that didn't have contactless and they're like, no, 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 don't use that card anymore. Use this. So obviously it was like a failed right. attempt. Seems like they're trying to make that happen again. And again, it's sort of like maybe this is, this is the success to a point of Apple Pay is kind of finally pushing the rest of the U.S. payment system to just admit that contactless payments are here and you need to and you just need to get on board with the way that this is working. It seems like maybe they're actually going to make it happen this time. Right. And, and Target was one of those companies like they were part of the merchant customer exchange. Remember currency? Oh, yes. Debacle. And basically everyone else left it, including Best Buy and 7-Eleven, and they support Apple Pay now. So Target took a while to get there. But Target, too, has had some really bad security breaches over Mm -hmm. the last several years. Actually, both my wife and I had our debit card stolen like months apart uh, after running them at Target because they had a couple of different leaks and we got – Dot up in both of them. There's a target like two minutes from my house. Don't judge me. But the, the security is really the driver for me is that they're never going to have my actual debit card number again. Like I sent my wife the story. I was like, hey, as soon as our target supports this, start using Apple Pay. Because she's used to doing it at Whole Foods and, and Walgreens and a few other places. But Target is a big holdout. And it's notable that they were part of that previous group. So I'm hoping that, like you said, Target is is sort of a – a canary in the coal mine or whatever for these other companies to say, okay, look, this is clearly where it's going. And uh, I just hope we see it more and more places because, you know, the U S we're behind in a lot of this stuff and it'd be nice to be as secure as the rest of the world. Also what, uh, nothing like going to the UK to teach you that this is what it feels like to have a frictionless experience where you can assume that everybody does contactless payments because I always, uh, you know, I, I talk to my wife about this where I say to her, you know, oh, you can pay with Apple pay and you, you don't need your phone. Your watch will do it. Even if your phone's not around, even if you're not on the internet, it's all true. It'll just, it'll work. Um, and her point is always like, well, I, I need to take my credit card with me because lots of places don't support Apple pay. And it's true. Like even, I have to have a map of like, well, where might I go and what might I buy? Uh, and do any of those places take Apple Pay or not? And then, you know, you've lost the ability to not carry your wallet around with you at that point right. because you can't count on it. Whereas in the UK, I felt like I could really just go and not worry about it. And that if there was some weird place that didn't take contactless, I could go to the next store down, which would, because almost, you know, it's almost impossible to take, you basically can't take credit cards at that point. You're just taking cash and then you're a person with a wagon out on the street or something. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I, I want it to be like that in the United States. And I know that's hard because of the size of the U S because the complexity of, uh, you know, uh, for people who shame the U S for being behind on some of this stuff, it culturally, it is our fault, but at the same time, it is a very large country and turning over the payment system at every place everywhere is also very expensive and takes time. Um, the frustration is that with the chip thing, which became mandatory, everybody did have to buy new terminals. And that should have been the moment where NFC basically payments lit up for everybody. And it's very frustrating that that didn't happen and that instead we're getting this slow grind as everybody kind of like finally gives up on the dream of creating their own little walled garden and instead just kind of uses the standard. Mm-hmm. 
I'm all for it. Yeah, it's good. It's good news. So anyway, everybody who's not in the United States, you can la- point and laugh at us. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> all right. Let me take a break before we get to our guests. And let me tell you about our sponsor this week. This episode of Download is brought to you by PDF Pen, the ultimate tool for editing PDFs from our friends at Smile. You can say goodbye to filing, go completely paperless with scanning an OCR markup, and highlight PDF, search and redact sensitive information for real, not fake redaction that people figure out later on the internet. Real redaction. Uh, you can correct text in PDFs even without the originals. You can insert, remove, and reorder pages, move and adjust images, record and playback audio and annotations, watermark your PDFs. You know, it's amazing what PDF Pen will let you do with uh, with PDFs. You can create forms, even automatically, fillable PDF forms, edit tables of contents, convert websites into PDFs. Pretty much anything you could possibly do with a PDF, PDF Pen Pro will let you do. And if you're a user of dark mode on the Mac, PDF Pen and PDF Pen Pro versus 10.2 includes support for dark mode on Mojave, plus smoother scrolling, faster thumbnail drawing, and increased maximum zoom. Basically, if you touch PDFs, you need PDF Pen. You can learn more about PDF Pen and PDF Pen Pro at smilesoftware.com slash podcast. Steven, you you have uh, to do all the business of Relay FM. I imagine you are dealing with PDFs all the time. I am. And, you know, the, the built-in preview app on the Mac is fine, but there's a lot of times where I just need to do more. Yeah. And I don't want to use something like Acrobat. You know, I want to use something that feels like <sighs> no, a no, Mac no, no, app no. that's made by people who care and mm-hmm. that is like you can actually use. And so, yeah, PDF Ben has been part of my workflow for years and years. See, there you go. So go to smilesoftware.com slash podcast and learn more. Thank you to PDF Pen for supporting Download and all of Relay FM. Okay, now we are joined by one of our guests this week. It is Natalie Jarvie from The Hollywood Reporter. She specializes in tech and digital media. Natalie, welcome back to Download. Hi, thanks for having me again. We have so much to talk about because there's so much going on. And I keep reading your stories about uh, what's going on in digital media at The Hollywood Reporter. People should really check all of the stuff that you do out. But we got to start with Netflix. Uh, big week for Netflix. They had uh, they had some news about their subscriber base growing to 139 million worldwide uh, that they announced last week. Uh, and then they also gave a lot of tidbits about who's watching Bird Box and how many people are watching different TV shows and stuff like that. Um, but, I mean, it, it's hard not to start with the fact that Roma got 10 Oscar nominations and that Netflix joined the Motion Picture Academy this week. So this, this seems like a milestone week for Netflix. If it wasn't a huge thing already, becoming kind of like that much more of a major player and and a legitimate force in Hollywood. Is is that accurate or is this all just kind of symbolic? No, absolutely. It's, it's really fascinating. Uh, Netflix has, for the last few years, really been fighting to be recognized by Hollywood, especially when it comes to the film industry. And there's been a lot of, of tension there because they're choosing to do things differently. And the, uh, the industry doesn't always like that. You know, they're not releasing their theaters, uh, their films, uh, widely in theaters, uh, the way that, you know, maybe like an Amazon is doing. Um, and that, you know, is, is frustrating some in the industry. So everyone was watching really closely at what was going to happen with the Oscars. Now, I, I think everyone also assumed that Roma was going to get a lot of nominations sure. uh, because it's a great film by a, a great director who is well-respected in the industry. But 
there were a lot of questions about how it would be recognized. And uh, certainly it shows that, you know, if Netflix is willing to support, uh, you know, auteurs and filmmakers, Hollywood will reward them. Yeah, the um, the MPAA thing is interesting. Um, joining the MPAA is, and I, you know, the story I read, which might have been written by you, I'm not sure. Also said, you know, Amazon will probably join at some point too. It does seem a little bit symbolic. It's a little bit like a milestone. But I thought it was interesting that when the MPAA was asked about uh, Netflix's conflict with the movie industry over, do you screen these things in? Uh, in theaters before you put them on Netflix and and its conflict with the con film festival and a bunch of other stuff like that, the MPAA's response was that's for the theater owners. We're not worried about it, which I thought was a really interesting way of uh, of uh, of just kind of deflecting the whole thing because that is there is still a tension there between the traditional distribution mechanism. Um, uh, at the same time, Netflix seems to be making a lot of movies that would otherwise never get released, right? Absolutely. And, you know, Roma, they're making it available to their millions of subscribers. That's a movie that a lot of people probably would not go to see in a theater. So it could potentially be reaching a larger audience via Netflix. Now, we don't know for sure, but, you know, that's that's one of the arguments. You know, the interesting thing to note, too, about Netflix joining the MPAA is that, you know, they're losing a member when Disney acquires Fox. Right. Uh, they get pretty hefty uh, membership fees from these members. So they may have been incentivized to start opening up their ranks to like a Netflix. Um, and, you know, we've largely reported that this could be really valuable in terms of, you know, fighting piracy and, you know, some of these other things that the MPAA uh, really kind of focuses on. Uh, and, and yes, they're kind of, you know, deflecting that question about, you know, the theatrical windows and, and saying that's more of a a problem for the the theater owners than right. it is for them. It's nice to get that uh, those tens of millions of dollars in dues every nice. year. It's it's pretty. You don't want to. That's a that's quite a f- shortfall. And if they bring in the mm-hmm. Amazon money too, then it's even better for the MPAA. Um, the, okay, so another thing that happened uh, last week or early this week, um, I guess it was last week, was the NBC Universal announcement that um, they are yes, like everybody else, going to start their own streaming service. Um, you actually interviewed the CEO of NBC Universal, Steve Burke, about that service and about Hulu. Um, and this is all kind of like tied up together because if we think about Warner Media licensing friends non-exclusively to Netflix, um, we heard about how The Office is often the most watched thing on Netflix, and that's an NBC Universal property. There's this question about like Netflix in the long run having to pay a lot of money or losing licenses to stuff that aren't their originals, and and companies like Warner Media and now NBC Universal potentially building their own streaming services on the backs of the content, the, the library content that currently goes to Netflix. How do you think, you know, how do you think this is going to play out? Are we going to uh, see all of the studios take their balls and go home from Netflix? Or is it going to be like the Friends deal, a kind of new a relationship where they're competing and also being partners. So it's really interesting. I asked Steve Burke this very question when I talked to him. I said, you know, are you going to go more the Disney route and and say up front, hey, we're taking all our content off of Netflix? Or are you going to go more the Warner Media route? And he said that they're going to have to evaluate on a case-by-case basis. Uh, as shows, deals expire, and, you know, they'll kind of look at them and make a decision. He also was very quick to note that The Office, uh, their deal with Netflix expires in 2020. 
2021. He did know that off the top of his head. So he's clearly <laughs> been thinking about this. You know, the office, NBC executives like to say that the office is often the number one most watched show on Netflix in a given month. I mean, everyone talks about friends, but the office has a huge loyal audience too. And, you know, you have to imagine that Netflix would play, pay a pretty penny to keep the office on its service. So the NBC might decide that it makes more sense to, to get that paycheck. I mean, think about it. I don't know that someone is going to subscribe to a new service to get old episodes of The Office that they've probably watched before. But it's a great additional thing to have when you're in between shows, you want, you know, to just sit down on a Friday night and turn something on and laugh and not worry about what you're watching. And so for for NBC, they've got to focus on what kind of library do they want to build up on their own service that's going to get people to subscribe and get people to come in and stick around. And they might decide that, you know, it's okay for them to keep uh, The Office on Netflix for a few years as they're working to build up, uh, you know, this other service on their own. But at some point, you gotta, you got to assume that The Office will come to that NBC service. Yeah, it is telling that, that uh, Netflix announced uh, last week that they're working with Steve Carell and mm-hmm. Greg Daniels, the co-creator of The Office, the U.S. version of The Office, to, uh, build, to do a new show called Space Force. And they did a trailer and all of that. that. Hard not to read that as being uh, very knowledgeable about their audience loving The Office and wanting to get a next project from the people behind The Office. Oh, absolutely. You have to remember, too, like, I mean, Netflix is... is- buying up shows and and producing shows at this crazy rate because they know that this is coming. They know that eventually all of these companies are going to start pulling back their programming and they need to be ready for that day. So, you know, they're, they're smart. They know what's happening. They're, they see the writing on the wall and they are starting to kind of put the uh, plan in place for what happens when, when those shows are gone. So sort of the, the flip side of that, I think for consumers, just sitting here listening to, to you talk about it, you know, right now, some of these major shows, you know, they're on Hulu for a while and they get picked up by somebody else. And you kind of have to keep up with where content, the back, where the back catalog content is, right? But it seems like we're going to a world where at least the big names, things like The Office or Friends or, you know, Parks and Rec, you know, these sort of big shows, like they're just going to be on the service from the network they were on initially. Like, and I think while there's going to be more options than ever, there's something kind of nice about that of knowing just like, if I like these shows, okay, they were on NBC, they must be on NBC streaming service. At least that's where I would look first. Well, and and I, do you think that would impact like the consumer's uh, approach to picking where they want to go? Possibly. It gets even more complicated than that, though. I mean, Friends did air on NBC, but it's owned by Warner Brothers, so it will be on the Warner Media Service. I don't know that the average consumer understands that. And I do think that that's going to start to become a really interesting problem that these companies are going to have to figure out. I mean, Disney is a brand. Everyone knows Disney. People know Marvel. They know Pixar. But a lot of these other companies, you know, Viacom, I don't know that Viacom is a brand that people recognize outside of the industry in the same way. And it will be really interesting to see how these companies uh, start to build up these direct-to-consumer brands and and start to, you know, make the case for what their value proposition is. Uh, and, you know, I do wonder how, how this all plays out when you do have all these kind of fragmented services. You're right. I think people will start to go and say, well, I know I like NBC shows. I like The Office. I like Parks and Rec. I like 30 Rock. So I'll probably be an NBC Universal uh, user and go to their streaming service. Um, or, you know, I really like Friends and 
the DC world. So I'll go to Warner media. Uh, but I do wonder if it starts to become really complicated for people to manage where to find all this content. And, you know, hey, you know, the great thing about cable is that it's all in one place. It's easy to find. You right. don't have to think about it in the same way. I was looking on uh, on Twitter. There was a conversation going on between John August, the screenwriter, and Justin Marks, who's the showrunner of Counterpart, one of my favorite TV shows, which is on Stars. And I think they were jumping off of, it, it's a lot of stuff in the water here, but the idea that Netflix is such a power powerful uh trendsetter um the idea that there was that show i can't remember the name of it now you you that's it which was a lifetime show that nobody watched and lifetime was going to do a second season and actually uh, reneged on it because the ratings were so bad and netflix picked it up because netflix already seemed to know and when they put it on netflix it was instantly a hit and people were talking about it and it showed that 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 was a tv show that nobody had heard of um, when it was on Lifetime, but that Netflix could make it a hit. We, I, I, I've seen that with The Good Place, where we were all talking about The Good Place on NBC, but once it hit Netflix, everybody started to talk about it. And I wonder if there's a dynamic there, too, which is for a long time, Netflix is going to be a star maker. Everybody's throwing out their books because of Marie Kondo, right? Uh, like, this is Netflix... <laughs> Netflix can make the cultural conversation. It has that kind of power right now. And if I am uh, an uh, NBC Universal or Warner Media, I-, I start to wonder, like, you know, do I use Netflix as a way to like tease my content to get people to come over and follow it further? Because you know, they may not be able to. If you release a show and nobody watches it, then it, it doesn't matter. And and something like Counterpart, which is great, it's on Stars. Stars ha- does not have a coherent streaming strategy, right? now and as a result that is a fantastic show that nobody is seeing if it went on netflix tomorrow i think there'd be a huge amount of buzz about it so you know i i think that's part of the dilemma here is that netflix is so powerful culturally and you got to factor that in if you're a studio executive yeah that's really interesting you know i think one of the one of the challenges of netflix is that they don't often um showcase the brand name of the company that produced the show or maybe the, the network that first aired the show so you're Right. You know, something like um, Riverdale on the CW, a lot of teens think of Riverdale as being a Netflix show totally. because they that's where they watch it. They don't watch it on, you know, linear television on, you know, whatever night it airs. Yeah, I don't even know. Um, but that can also hurt the CW because then, you know, the, these these especially younger viewers, they don't have any brand affinity for that network. Instead, they have the brand affinity for Netflix. So I do think it's a tricky thing where, you know, yeah, it might be helpful to go boost the awareness for your show by, by licensing it to Netflix. But then do you give up that so crucial kind of, you know, brand identity and an awareness from consumers? And, and is it hard to ever get that back when, you know, a couple years down the line, you suddenly say, uh, uh, nope, you got to go watch friends on my Warner media service. So I don't, I don't know. I think I think that's going to be, you know, a hard question for these studios to parse as, as they start to figure out, you know, how to how to make the most of their content. Now, talking about your interview with Steve Burke of NBC Universal, one of the things that I thought was most fascinating about it was when you asked him about Hulu, which NBC Universal owns thirty percent of. Uh, Disney is, basically owns the rest uh, because they are acquiring more and more of it when when their acquisition of Fox closes. And there's a real question about like also Hulu as a product is in transition. They just changed their prices to drop their their uh, their ad version to make it cheaper, but then the uh, they are raising the price for their over the top service 
at the same time. So there's a lot going on there where, you know, it was originally conceived as a place for TV networks to put some str- put their toe in the water of streaming. And it obviously has to be transformed into something different. All of us kind of assume that Disney is going to use it as the outlet for their um, more, you know, non-Disney brand aligned material stuff from ABC, stuff from FX and FXX, because they're going to be acquiring all the Fox uh, uh, cable channels that do entertainment stuff, not sports and news. Um, and you asked Steve Burke about it because they own 30% of it. Like, are they a competitor? Are they a partner? You know, you own them, but you're also going to compete with them. Um, his answer was fascinating. He basically was like, sure, we can do both. And he seemed very noncommittal. Do you think that this is, do you think he's just being noncommittal because he knows ultimately he's going to negotiate a, a, a sale to Disney? Or do you think NBC Universal is happy to just keep on being part of Hulu? So, yeah, what Steve Burke told me was that essentially he thinks they have a enough inventory, they have enough programming, they can that they can continue to license shows to Hulu and launch their own service. So that's interesting. Um, you know, I do think that for NBC, there's a benefit to staying in Hulu for at least a little while. Think about it. Disney is their largest rival. And Disney is going to own, to your point, 60% of Hulu once uh, the Fox deal closes. The only way to stop Disney from being able to do whatever they want with Hulu and that huge 25 million install base, subscriber base, is to have three board members on the Hulu board (laughs) and to sit there and to kind of make things difficult for Disney. Plus, those board members, I'm sure, are going to learn a lot about what it takes to run a, a streaming service and be able to apply some of that knowledge to the service that they're building. So I think in the short term, they're going to stay in Hulu for a while. Again, this new service that they're launching won't launch until early 2020. And, you know, it'll probably take a little while for it to really ramp up. And, you know, so I think that they have a bit of a window. At some point, though, I think it'll be hard for them to remain in both. And they will have to make a decision. And yes, ultimately negotiate a big sale of their Hulu stake. Uh, their stake in Hulu is uh, is a founding stake because NBC Universal was uh, a among the um, kind of early investors um, in that business. And and so they'll be able to ask for a pretty uh, sizable, um, you know, kind of valuation on that stake to give it up at some point. Right. It never ceases to be interesting, the, the way that the entertainment industry is transforming because of streaming. It's fascinating. And uh, again, people should check out your coverage at HollywoodReporter.com because it's great. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on Download again. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, and now it's segue time to move on to our second guest, Stephen. All right, so we are now joined by basically our our only friend with a Tesla. But you've spoken a lot about Tesla on your show, the Accidental Tech Podcast. Uh, So we're joined by Marco Armit. Marco, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you've spoken a lot about Tesla, both uh, the product and the company. And so we figured you'd be the perfect guest for this because there's always a lot of Tesla news. Like I feel like Elon Musk is always just like one weird tweet away from a thousand headlines. But over the last uh, little bit, last couple weeks, there's been quite a few Tesla stories. And I kind of want to get your take on them, both as a customer and as someone who just sort of follows the company. So we saw that this has been coming, changing pricing at supercharger stations, which, uh, you know, it used to be free, right? When you bought a car and now they're charging, I think. Is Is that the story there, Marco? Yeah, like all Teslas used to come with 
or well, I, I don't I don't have all of them, but, but most of them came with, or they it was, it was at least an option to have unlimited supercharging at their superchargers. And so, um, and I think some of the budget models they might have made it optional, but on on the higher end ones, it was always standard for years and years and years. And basically, what happened was, uh, you know, they Tesla has has footed the bill for the electricity for those. And as usual, like, you know, most people used it just fine. You know, you'd use it like on long car trips, you'd, you'd you know, get off the highway rest stop that had the supercharger, charge up your car when you go inside for a sandwich and come out and continue on your trip. And it was totally great and fine. Um, but, you know, as what frequently happens when there's a free resource for everybody, um, people started abusing it. And there were uh, there were groups of people who would like do all of their charging at superchargers like and in there's actually some cases where this might make sense. Like if you live somewhere where you can't run a power cord to your car, like if you park on the street, then you would like, you know, once a week go to a supercharger for a half hour, fill up, you know, and, and be on your way. Um, and that was a little bit of a problem because it was like, well, they don't really mean this to be all of your charging. And then it started getting even worse when like, taxi services started getting tesla model s's and <laughs> and doing all of their charging at the superchargers for free because when you have a job like that where you're doing lots and lots and lots of mileage fuel costs are a significant part of your business costs and so there started becoming like commercial level abuse of the superchargers <laughs> and so uh they started having to uh set limits and, and and make people start paying now in practice the the like actual pricing and limits that they've set are things that like if you use it the way that that I do and I think that most owners do which is as an occasional thing if you're on a long road trip you would never hit these limits and you, you so you would never have to pay anything uh but the uh but if you if you use it heavily then you have to pay some small fee and They've said on a number of occasions that the, they set the fees basically at cost for the electricity so like they're mm-hmm. not trying to look at this as a profit center. I don't know if that's actually trustworthy long term uh, you know i think long term they could see this as a profit center it, you know everyone sees things as profit centers when when they're desperate enough uh so we'll see what happens long term but um it's not like a a big deal like as an owner you're unlikely to ever hit these fees and if you do hit them you're it's still like way cheaper than gas would have been for the same right the same distance and it sounds like what they're what they're doing here is they've made some modifications to how they're charging and they used to have sort of like a, a pricing uh, for electricity by region or by state um, and it sounds like now they have decided to be more granular about that which leads to there's a an electrek article about this it leads to how um you know new york state uh, used to have a rate of 24 uh, cents per kilowatt hour and now if you're in new york city it's 32 cents which on one level it's like well the real estate of wherever that supercharger is is going to be more expensive in new york city so it may just be that they've decided to to add um a little more granularity to it um and and i agree with you as somebody with a a a small cheap electric car when i go to a fast charger and pay some money not only do i feel okay about it because it really isn't that much different from paying for gas um but i don't do it that often and i do it when i really need it and it's a it's a nice service to have but it does it does give give me this feeling every time they do one of these things where it's actually in this case this story kind of rational that they've got more demand there's been abuse there are actual costs here and that as the company grows and changes they want to adapt i get all of that i do also just get this vibe like tesla's cranking up the you know the cash sources everywhere it can a little bit are you feeling that too oh absolutely i mean first of all you know they they they're they're 
kind of cutting off areas that they could have lost money like as like slow leaks so like you know this is one this is the big one actually they ended the customer referral program that's another one right where that was like they they really wanted people to refer other people for teslas and and then they would give them a kickback and now they're just like no 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 we're not going to do that either to be fair they they weren't very good at paying those out (laughs) i I think they still owe me the uh the the like children's uh like the elect- little electric ride-on like bike oh, man. thing whatever that was you know like the, like yeah, the power yeah. wheels of tesla like yeah. it was like oh, yeah like they they made like a, a, a literally like a power wheels tesla model s and uh and i i technically earned that with my referral uh money and they just never like they never sent it like i, I filled the thing <laughs> saying he sent it to this address this is the color i want and everything never heard man, a word that's like, and i've heard similar things that's like, like being a just, kid and filling out the back of a cereal box about something and they'd say it's going to be like <laughs> 10 to 12 weeks for delivery uh, yeah, yeah exactly and yeah, and i don't I'm, think i'm ever going to see that like, maybe by the time my kid is like a teenager maybe we won't fit in anymore but uh but yeah so like you know they they didn't run the referral program particularly well and and but yeah they're ending that too you know i I think this is a sign of tesla you know there's always these reports about them being in financial trouble and about to go bankrupt and most of those are bs and and they've shown over time like they're fine like they're able to keep going you know i wouldn't say they're like you know invincible to potential problems but you know but they they are clearly much more stable and their finances are in much better shape than what a lot of people give them credit for and what a lot of analysts give them credit for and i don't know what what, you know whether that's like stock manipulation or people just being mad that this newcomer is upsetting the industry who knows it doesn't matter to me but uh but the reports of tesla and their financial health have very little credibility on, on average sometimes they are right but their their average is not good um so but that that being said though like it is very clear that you know tesla is hiking up prices on the models s and x 10 <laughs> model, model s and x <laughs> no uh, I, I i i can't say it like i can't I say know, x I, I i said 10 in my brain i'm like oh god no go back oh apple's ruined me but uh yeah so like they've hiked up prices on those they've eliminated low cost options or lower cost options from those well they're trying to differentiate them from the three at this point right so like they don't need to be cheap because the three is the quote-unquote cheap uh and the threes that they're selling that they're actually shipping to people are the higher priced models like the the super low price threes aren't aren't really shipping yet as far as i know and so like they're clearly doing things to optimize for like super profit right now and that's, you know, it's usually not a sign of incredible health of the company when, when they do that. Uh, but again, I, I don't believe any news that says like they're about they're having trouble. They're about to go bankrupt because people have been crying wolf on that one for years. And it's never it's never been true. So the counter argument that I would say, I'm not sure I believe this, but I do think it's maybe possible is that Tesla was a startup that was managed like, you know, it was leaking. It had like a, a thousand different leaks because they weren't concerned about it. Like Elon Musk was like, we got to make this car. And and there is now somebody there who has been tasked with being like an adult who runs a, a grown up business who is looking at all of these leaks and saying, like, why is that? the way it is why is that the way it is um and if you're a customer i mean it does feel like they're trying to uh to raise prices everywhere but i also kind of understand it from a point that it, it, it the story could be that there's some grown-up in the room now who's looking at the way tesla's business is running now that it's really grown and saying we can't you know we can't run this like this rickety startup that has a couple of high-end models now that we're shipping the three in volume that we have to be a little more rational and a little less fast and loose i i, I do think there's probably some truth to that i will tell you that in my neighborhood 
um, we used to have there was one secret Tesla behind it was a it was a Model S behind a, a garage door and they, they like occasionally they would drive it and you would see it emerge but otherwise you never saw it on the street and in the last year there are like five six Teslas on my blocks block almost all of the Model 3s so at least where I live I can feel the fact that Tesla has gone to a much more kind of mass market uh, than than they used to be in and 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 I, I'd imagine they're feeling that too oh they absolutely are I mean their their operations for the last few months like since the model 3 has been really shipping in great volume uh, their operations have been a mess like they their dealerships are just flooded with people they're dropping things on the floor left and right with like not doing paperwork correctly um, I, I had a bad experience renewing a lease where they didn't cancel the old one and I had to be calling them in the bank for like months getting them to fix it like the dealerships are slipping up everywhere they the operations are slipping up everywhere the service is a mess if you need parts or repairs there's often very long wait times to get them um, but I hope that what I hope what you're saying is true. Like I, I hope that there have been like you know grownups who have come in and, and are going to improve this um, because they they desperately need it. Like the three is it, from my experience as, as a customer of theirs, the three is both saving and ruining the company at the same time because like their operations just are not handling this influx of, of volume very well and they were and their operations weren't fantastic even before so they they need an adult like that to come in and i think what we've seen is the way elon musk runs things might be great for the product but for the operations of the company is is terrible and, and so like as a customer i'm i'm very very happy with my car but boy, I really try to minimize how I have to interact with the company because it's a mess. Uh, it's not going to get any better. The, the, the next story is that they have cleared regulatory hurdles to sell the Model 3 in Europe, which is like a, a huge step for them, opens up a massive new market. But you've got to think that that stress that you have described, feeling that as a customer, uh, I can't imagine this is going to help that very much as they continue to expand. Yeah, I mean, it's again like the model three has i think both saved and ruined the company so far like if they can get that sold in europe then they're gonna have a lot more income you know because as far as i know i don't think they're losing money in the model three i think they're being profitable for them so that's that's only going to be good things for the their financial health if it's run correctly uh and so maybe this having all this headroom in the finances which maybe they haven't had in the past you know because they were running a little closer to the metal before maybe having all this headroom in the finances is going to allow them to scale up the operations a little bit better and to clean up some of that stuff and, and get it better run who knows i mean that, that could be optimistic thinking on my part but uh, <laughs> the operations can't get a lot worse than where they are now so let's let's hope hope this gives them uh, the ability to make them better so bottom line is though i mean you did for all of your trouble with that lease and all that you were satisfied enough to um, continue and get basically a new version and a new lease of the uh, of the Model S. So, um, I, I you know I hear when I listen to you talk about your Tesla stories on ATP, I have this feeling like um, it's it's fascinating because you're torn between loving the product and disliking the company that makes it, um, which is not, I mean, in the tech world, that's not a unique feeling, but I, I, I think it does say something for the product that for all of the issues that are going on here, um, you're excited about that product. And, uh, you know, if, if the uh, streets of Mill Valley are any indication, a lot of people are excited about, about Tesla as a brand because you can't, 
like seriously you can't go down a block without seeing a model three now which shows that that strategy of having something that is a little more quote-unquote affordable is uh paying off for them too so that it's great that they've got a good product um you know that that I was not like that was my question that for you ultimately is, um, is it is it still worth having the Tesla? And everything I hear from you is, yes, absolutely. You love this car. I absolutely love it. Is it like it is my favorite car I've ever had by a long shot. And that's why I renewed the lease and got another one because it. I mean, honestly, I would have just bought out the old one, but they—they're the way they structure the pricing makes that not a very smart idea most of the time. Um, but uh, but like, I I just I love this car. I absolutely love it. And one of the interesting things about it is like, even though I've I had a lot of pro- problems with the company's operations getting the car, like with the finance side of it, the you know the cars themselves have been very reliable for me so far. Like, they, there's only so much that can go wrong on them. There's not that you know, not, not a lot of moving parts. You know, so the cars have been great. I, the experience of owning them and and driving them is just fantastic. And the other thing is, like, I, I was looking around. Like, they're still like the, the Model S has been a success for what five years now at least, and there are still no competitors in the market that are like it. Like, no one else makes cars like the Model S or the Model X, or the Model 3. None of them have direct competitors. And I keep thinking, like, sh- surely the, the, the major car <laughs> manufacturers are going to launch a competitor to this in a year or two, right? And they just haven't. There's, you know, there's things that are, like, kind of similar in some ways, but then are totally different in other major ways. Like, there, there are no other cars in the market that are like these cars. And, and, I, and if one of them is a great car for you, like for me with the Model S it's there's nowhere else you could you really want to go because like what else would i get there's nothing else i can get that is all electric that is a like you know a sporty looking but still large interior hatchback like that that doesn't exist there's there are no other ones so i'm uh i'm very it's a good thing i'm very satisfied where i am because (laughs) there's nothing else for me out there yeah it's always interesting when when musk has asked sort of about like his vision of the future and he has said on multiple occasions that that he hopes tesla sparks that sort of change in the automotive industry you know that that they have more competition in this area because ultimately that's better for the planet and that's what he says drives all of this but you're right i mean coming off of ces and then there was a car show uh last week like some high-end brands have announced some things that they're it seems like it's perpetually a year or two off in the future like it at some point i just want to be able to like go buy a, a fully electric honda civic right like that's where it needs to be but they seem so hesitant or so slow to get there it's it's a little frustrating yeah I, and i hope we get there soon because ultimately you know the environmental angle of this is correct there there's a lot of hurdles to clear especially involving uh, cost and infrastructure like those are the two big hurdles to clear but we're getting there like we're, we're it's not like no one's like flipping a switch and tomorrow all of a sudden making electric cars perfectly affordable for everybody and putting chargers everywhere like it, it's going to be a slow slog as it has been but we are making like we are progressing we are getting to this world and for a lot of people this world is not the future it's the present and that number the the number of people who that's true for is increasing and and is increasing rapidly so i really really hope the other automakers get on board and, and start putting out a lot more electric models because once you it's like once you go electric everything else feels like a dinosaur from the past yep in some ways quite literally like it, it is it is so different it is so disruptive to everything else like once you try this every other car feels 
like ancient garbage by comparison yeah mm-hmm. no it's true even my even my old uh used nissan leaf it's like once you start driving an electric car you're like oh no this is i don't want why am i going to the gas station for this other car it's not it, it's right. just it's totally it's totally different i will say there was a stat i saw um i think last week that uh internal combustion engine has reached its peak in china and is on the way down and china is actually converting to electric wow. way faster than um the rest of the world apparently that um, electric car sales are up, up, up in China and the internal combustion engine sales are down. And they had a, uh, I think, because there are uh, some economic issues in China, as we know from other stories in the tech industry. But it sounds like when they had a shortfall in car sales last year over the year before, it was all in internal combustion engine sales. And the, the electric, I believe, numbers were still up. And it's one of those I- instances where you look and you say, well, okay, China has turned the corner. And it seems like uh, the US and Europe are behind there. But, um, but China alone will probably put a lot of pressure on car makers to really kind of refocus on on electric and i i hope that happens because i i have to be honest i mention our nissan leaf to people and the most common response i get is wait a second it's not a hybrid because i think we everybody's figured out what a hybrid is and they don't understand what a plug-in electric is um and and so there's a whole new education of about electric that that goes on because i think a lot of people think electric cars are hybrids and they don't understand when i say it literally doesn't have a gas tank they just don't get it so there's a lot more education to do too just makes my pickup truck feel really old-fashioned all, <laughs> <laughs> all right well marco thank you so much for talking about tesla headlines with us i you know you you do on accidental tech podcast which people can find at atp.fm you can uh, listen to marco talk about tesla on a regular basis as events warrant, but I thought, uh, <laughs> given we, we were looking at the headlines this week and we said, there's a bunch of Tesla stories. Let's talk to Marco. Uh, so thank you so much for being on download. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. All right. Before we go, we like to end on a happy note with a fuzzy puppy update. And here's my, uh, it starts a little dark, but I, I, it's got a good ending. So hang on. Okay. Hang on. Um, Rudolph is the miracle puppy. Why is he the miracle puppy? So he is a, 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 a seven or eight month uh, lab pit bull mix, and he was at a shelter in Oklahoma that is not a no-kill shelter, and they were overcrowded. So what happens when people don't adopt dogs and cats, which you should do, is in some places they will actually euthanize the, the animals in order to mm-hmm. make space because there are too many animals in the shelter. It's not great. No-kill shelters are becoming much more pro- prominent, but they're still out there. Anyway... Rudolph was selected to be euthanized. He was injected with the euthanasia drugs by a veterinarian. And when the vet returned, he found that the puppy was still alive, refused to die. The vet said he'd never seen anything like it before in his entire life. Um, and so they, uh, they, they took care of him and said that he was going to go to a no-kill shelter because he had refused to die. And then there were many, many people who wanted to adopt Randolph and, or sorry, Rudolph and somebody did. And now he has a forever home, which is adorable. And he is a super adorable puppy. And the other thing I want to take away from this is, uh, if you have a local, uh, shelter that is, uh, that is euthanizing animals, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life, but, uh, maybe Maybe you want a dog. Maybe you do. Maybe you want a cat. I don't know. Or two. Or, or six. Sure. My my <laughs> Go crazy. My sister-in-law has year. three, and she feels like it's not enough, so it can happen. 
it could happen anyway that's the fuzzy puppy update good job rudolph the miracle puppy he refused to leave and now has a home uh amazing it would be great if uh if that just happened in general that that those pets were like nope I'm not going to take your your drugs. I'm going to just stay here and be adopted. Anyway, it was a very heartwarming story from Oklahoma. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Download. Thanks again to Marco and Natalie for joining us. And uh, to Stephen, as always, for uh, being here and talking about headlines with me. Thank you, Stephen. It's a highlight of every week, Jason. Oh, that's so sweet. Uh, it's one of the top tech stories of the week is that we do a podcast <laughs> uh, and, then, and we'll do it again next week. So until then, we will keep watching the headlines so you don't have to. Uh, goodbye, everybody. 